If you uh, brought your Bibles along with you today, you are welcome to open up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll be reading from that chapter in just a few moments. Uh, But as is typical, the passage is printed in your bulletin, and you may find it easier today as I'll be using various passages in the bulletin to just follow along in your bulletins, but up to you. Uh, We are today coming to Sermon 3 of our series for the summer. Uh, As a reminder, the series for the summer is called Flesh and Bones, a Biblical Theology of the Body, and our particular topic today is what's a body to do? Uh, As I was reminded, I may have uh, subconsciously been riffing on the title of a uh, Wendell Berry book, a collection of essays uh, that are called What Are People For? Uh, but in any case, I, I, what's a body to do is what we're looking at today, and that goes along pretty well as well with what are people for. If you weren't here last week, what we did is we considered the fact that God has made us as image bearers. We are uh, not just 2D, flat things, but instead we are living, breathing, three-dimensional body and soul image bearers of the invisible God. And last week, we talked about the ontology of that identification, that identification of image bearers. We talked about what does that mean uh, structurally, in uh, in terms of how we are made in our in our constitution, in our being, and what we saw there is that to be an embodied image bearer of God, recognizing that that's what we were made and how we were made at creation itself, recognizing that has been, uh, as we just sung, or as we will sing later, uh, spoiled, marred by the fall, something that we'll get into more uh, next week. Nevertheless, reflecting on this idea of how we have been made as image bearers, we saw that it helped us to appreciate a number of things from Scripture itself, the dignity of man, the finitude of man, the dependency of man, the fact that we're dependent upon God himself to provide, the fact that we're dependent on the creation and dependent on one another as well. We saw that uh, this idea of image bearing is one of the ways that we can appreciate the fact that we have presence and can express presence, presence with one another, presence before the Lord as well. And then the final thing that we considered together is that uh, being an embodied image bearer helps us to see the communal life for which we were designed uh, by God. Most particularly, we are in a covenantal relationship with the one who created us, whose image we bear physically and in a living way in our bodies. We are in connection with the creation which he made and perhaps most visibly to illustrate this and to demonstrate it, to enact it out, uh, the relationship that exists between uh, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, and then the rest of humanity as well. And so being an image bearer, uh, we saw many things of this, but it is essentially a relational aspect that we have. We are connected to others and to the Lord as we are embodied image bearers. This week, here's what we're going to do. As uh, advertised last week, uh, we're going to move from, if you will, the ontological, from this idea of how we were structured to the functional side of things. Basically saying, what are we supposed to do? 
Okay, we have these bodies that have been given to us. We are constructed in a certain way to bear the image. All right, then what are we supposed to do now? This is the economic side of things uh, compared to the ontological last week. All right, with that, I want to read for us this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, just so you know, I'm not going to exegete this passage in detail today. Uh, we've done that before in Sunday school classes. Uh, but it's one that we'll come back to a couple of times in the course of this summer, and so I don't need to do all of it today. One thing just to let you know before I read this passage is you will note both in, if you've got your Bibles open uh, or if you're looking at the uh, bulletin itself, you'll note quotation marks at the beginning of it. Uh, the idea here is that these are probably, and I say probably, these are probably phrases that were floating around in the Corinthian church and Paul is now addressing some of these phrases that are out there and these ideas that have sort of taken on a life of their own, uh, perhaps, in the church. It's a little bit hard to know that exactly because Greek doesn't have quotation marks, uh, but in any case, that seems to be the idea of what's taking place, and that's how your ESV understands it as well. This is the word of the living God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Lord, we thank you for your word. We, we don't think the way that we ought to think, and so we need your word to tell us about Jesus, to tell us about your truth, to tell us about your law, to inform us of your grace and of your goodness so that we can seek to understand you and glorify you in our bodies. We pray that today you would help us take another step in that, uh, that we might glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody knows what a Roomba is, right? Not Aruba, but a Roomba. Do you know what a Roomba is, right? It's the little vacuum cleaner. It's a little circular robotic thing that goes around your house and vacuum without you needing to do anything. I assume that at some point you have to empty a Roomba, but I don't know that. iRobot is the company that is behind the Roomba, and I think it was about a year or two ago that they put out a series of commercials with this tagline. The tagline is, I robot so you can human. Okay? I robot 
so you can human. The premise was that you uh, have more human things to do than vacuuming. In other words, you've got, uh, I couldn't tell in the commercials whether it's yoga or Pilates, it's one of the two. You've got yoga or Pilates to do, you've got holding babies to do, you've got taking kids uh, skateboarding to do, you've got, you've got fashioning neat little cookies and baking to do. You've got things that are better to do, so don't spend your precious time vacuuming. In one of the commercials, the words show up written. The, there's, there's music, of course, in the commercial, but there, uh, but there are no actual spoken words. The words just show up written on the screen. And it's very dramatic. It's really a, a great commercial, as commercials go. But it starts off with, we believe. We believe is bold, and then whatever the sentence is that comes after it. And there's about five or six of those, we believe, da, 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 and then it goes on from there. Let me translate that for you into Latin just to make sure we're understanding one of them. Kratom. Kratom. We believe. This is a creed. This is a creed that iRobot is presenting to you. And of course, the creed, uh, well, it, I guess you could say it either ends or it begins when you buy a rumba and stop working around the house and start doing all of the fun stuff. Personal note, I don't know if any of the folks at iRobot actually watched the movie iRobot, but it seems to me that that would be a really good thing, that you would have to watch the movie iRobot a number of times if you were gonna work for the iRobot company. Well, anyway, this is the endless promise of technology, right? It will free you, it will liberate you, it will enable you, it will increase your productivity so that you can human. Now, not all of them say that uh, to that extent, but that's the idea, so that you can human. Now, before I get to a more uh, biblical, theological look at things, I want you to do something with me. I want you to turn in your bulletins to page eight. Uh, and I, I, I use this quote from Milton's Paradise Lost whenever I can. I think I've used it in a sermon before, but that's okay. It's one that I come back to all the time. I'm glad to take us to it again. So, so the scene here in Paradise Lost is prior to the fall uh, into sin, and Adam and Eve are together, and they have come to the conclusion of a day. And at the conclusion of this day, the idea here is that Eve is lamenting the fact that they have to stop what they were doing and instead now rest or now essentially go to bed. Now, some of us can appreciate this. We've been having a fun and a delightful day all of the day, and we hate the fact that it has to come to an end, that we have to rest. But anyway, the idea here is that she has approached Adam with this lament, this concern, kind of saying, why do we have to rest? What's the, what's the point of the rest? Why do we have to do this? And this is Adam's response to her. When Adam thus to Eve, fair consort, the hour of night and all things now retired to rest, mind us of like repose, since God hath set labor and rest as day and night to men successive. And the timely dew of sleep now falling with soft slumberous weight inclines our eyelids. Other creatures all day long rove idle unemployed 
and less need rest. Man hath his daily work of body or mind appointed, which declares his dignity and the regard of heaven on all his ways. While other animals on active range and of their doings God takes no account, tomorrow, ere fresh morning streak the east with first approach of light, we must be risen and at our pleasant labor to reform yon flowery arbors, yonder alleys green, our walk at noon with branches overgrown that mock our scant manuring and require more hands than ours to lop their wanton growth. Those blossoms also and those dropping gums, uh, dropping gums, if you don't know, are the pricker balls that uh, fall down. Those dropping gums that lie bestrewn, unsightly and unsmooth. Ask riddance if we mean to tread with ease. Meanwhile, as nature wills, night bids us rest. So Roomba sees cleaning the floor as inhuman. Milton sees picking up pricker balls off the ground as a declaration of our dignity, appointed daily work of body, perhaps a little bit of mind as well. We used to pay our kids a penny a pricker ball to pick up pricker balls out of the yard. All right, now let me try and frame out what we're doing today a little bit more clearly and get us into scripture to look at uh, these things and this idea of the fact that embodying the image of God is not simply a fact. It's not simply a fact that we are image bearers, a status, an ontological reality, a noun, if you will. You are an image bearer of God. But instead here, the idea today is focusing on that embodied imaging of God is a mission. It is verbal. It is something that we are to do. God's original speech about mankind in Genesis chapter 1 and in what we saw in Genesis chapter 2 today, we read Genesis chapter 1 last week, is not only a declaration of blessing of the fact that we are uniquely created in terms of our status and our uh, constitution, it is a commissioning of sorts. God is commissioning us to the mission that he has, a covenantal commissioning in a beautiful harmonious, blessed communion with God, in which he says, exercise dominion, be fruitful, subdue, work, cultivate, guard, protect, eat this, and don't eat that. So here's the idea. Image bearing is dynamic, not simply static. Okay? Image bearing is Dynamic. Perhaps the clearest way to think of this is, uh, look at, with me at your bulletins again, the very front of your bulletins. I think the clearest way, and sometimes I try and do this so that if you forget everything else, here's the thing you can walk away from today, is to think of the verse, Ephesians 5, 1, that's on the front of your bulletin, the second of the two verses that are there on the front. It says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. The mission 
of image bearers is to imitate the one in whose image they have been made. That's what image bearers, at least that's what living image bearers are to do, right? There, there are all sorts of images that aren't supposed to do anything. They're just static things, right? They're just a picture or a sculpture or something that isn't living. But we're living, and so we are to imitate the one in whose image we have been made. Thus, we who are ontologically in God's image also see that expressed economically in terms of what we do. Those two things are harmoniously fused. Just to show us one example of that from Psalm 8, you don't have to look at it, it's the call to worship. Where we saw last week, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And so it's almost as if those two things can't be spoken of without saying both of them at the same time. That you are an image bearer made in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor, and as an image bearer, you are to do this work, the work that God has entrusted to us, the work of imaging God. And, and I think part of the importance here is just a very basic idea that image bearing is not intended to be some abstract idea. You know, you're not just supposed to ponder what it means to be an image bearer and come up with theories of what image bearing might be in the world. Instead, image bearing is concrete. It's, it's as tangible as we are. You've got to put flesh and bones on the idea of image bearing because, as it turns out, God gave you flesh and bones, and bones in order to be an imitator of him. Okay, so there you go. That's the idea that we're going to work now. We're going to spend the rest of the sermon pondering a question, and it's this. As we were made by God to be embodied image bearers, what did God intend for us? Especially originally, what did God intend for us? And then as history moves along, or to say it in as short a form as I could think of to say it, what's a body to do? What's the point of this thing? Why, why are you embodied and what are you supposed to do with the body that God has given to you? Now, I suppose that the answer to this, uh, one can say it is as grand as life itself. We are to do all the commands of God as embodied creatures. Uh, so, you know, whatever is in Scripture, that's what we are to do, and you don't have any choice but to do it as embodied uh, creatures because that's, in fact, what we are. God entered into a covenant of life with us, and so with our God-given bodies, we are to live all of life with these bodies and image God. And that includes more, and just in case you're wondering, if you're, if you're thinking this sermon is going to come back to uh, vacuuming and pricker balls, it's not going to end with vacuuming and pricker balls uh, and picking them up, but really it's all that God has given us to do. So here's what I think. I think it might just be possible and valuable to give us several categories by which we can organize and make concrete 
what we should do with our bodies, right? We, I, I can't just sit here and give us a list of 700 things we're supposed to do with our bodies. I, I think there are some good ways that we can categorize these things that allow us to get a handle on them, again, and be as concrete as possible. So I've got three things here, three, three answers to the question of what's a body to do, three at least categories that are appropriate, I think, for embodied image bearers. So here's the first one. As an embodied image bearer, what should, what should you do with your body? The answer is you should glorify God and enjoy him forever with the bodies that God has given to you. Now, that's, I hope, not a surprising answer to you. Uh, that's covenantal, uh, that, that's uh, confessional language that I'm giving to you. And I'm doing it intentionally. I, I'm, I'm not doing it just because I'm a, I'm a fuddy-duddy who wants to be connecting things to the confession all the time, although I am that and do want to do that. Um, but I'm doing it rather because it's a great answer to the question and because it gives us language that we can all agree on. We can all say, yes, we understand what that means and we can remember these things. That's what the confessions and the creeds do for us. In any case, let's now talk for a moment in, in trying to work our way at this glorifying and joy. Let's go back now to the Corinthian church. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you'd like to, just to that uh, passage that I read for us earlier. The Corinthian church seems to have had struggles, a number of struggles, in terms of the body, what are you supposed to do with the body? They didn't quite understand how the spiritual life of faith connected with, or what was the connection with the body? They could get that there was a spiritual life that a, that a person was supposed to have, and that this spiritual life consisted of communion with God and fellowship with God and intimacy with God and receiving the word of God. But they couldn't necessarily understand then, what does that have to do with my body? And in the confusion, uh, some of them seem to have grown dismissive of the body. Kind of saying, well, listen, the body doesn't make any difference at all. We're spiritual beings. We've got a soul, and that's the thing that's really important. And so we don't have to worry about the body at all. In fact, you can do whatever you want to with the body because it's just something that contains the soul, and the soul is the thing that really matters, so do whatever you want with your body. Conversely, there were some others who seemed to try and look at this same dynamic and yet came to the conclusion that we have to be very restrictive about what the body does because, in fact, the body does all sorts of immoral things and all sorts of sins and lusts and other things are contained within the body, and therefore they put restrictions on the body to try and restrain those for the sake of that more important thing, the interior, the soul of things. So there, there was confusion there was marital confusion that exists. There was sexual confusion. There was role confusion in the church. Uh, everybody was mixed up in terms of eating and drinking, what you could eat and drink and what you shouldn't or weren't allowed to eat and drink, with whom you could do the eating and drinking, where you could do the eating and the drinking. They were, they were confused about church body life about the Lord's Supper and about the discernment of the body. And there was resurrection body confusion as well. 
it had become a little bit unclear what the resurrection meant with respect to Christ's body and to ours as well. And as Paul works his way through this confusion, which we are not going to do right now, in the passage that he set before us, he gets back to a fundamental, creational, image-bearing truth to guide them. Okay, so, so he's trying to work through the issue, and he's got, you know, he's obviously, this is a fallen world in which he's dealing with, but in order to inform them in a fallen world of what they're supposed to do with their bodies, he borrows an idea that, if you will, goes right back to the very beginning when he concludes the section that we read with these words, so glorify God in your body. What are you supposed to do with your body? You are too glorify God with your body. That's true for Adam and Eve. That's true for us as well. Glorify God in your bodies. Or in another passage, if we flipped over, uh, and you don't have to, but if we flipped over a couple of chapters to chapter 10, where part of this eating and drinking issue is being explored in its relationship to idolatry and its relationship to loving other people, Paul comes to the conclusion of that and says, so, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. Paul is setting that up. What are you supposed to do with your bodies? What's a body to do? Glorify God with your bodies. That's what we are supposed to do. This is a life of worship a life of worship, if you will, with a, a small lowercase w in which all of our lives are seen as that which can glorify God. But it is also the life of worship with a capital W. Worship itself, the final word that comes from the book of Psalms is this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything that has breath, that's us. The breath of life into the people of God that we, as the people of God, might worship the Lord. So, unmistakably, the call that we have is to glorify God with our bodies. But, of course, the beautiful thing about the command to glorify is that it is not inconsistent with or in contrast to the command to enjoy Him forever. Now, we look out at the world, and sometimes it will seem as if those two things are inconsistent with one another, as if those two commands don't go together. One goes with one person, and then the ungodly get to do whatever they want with their bodies. They get to have all the fun that they can have with their bodies, while those who follow Christ have to suffer, have to endure things. But the body is to glorify and enjoy together. The idea here is not that at the beginning Adam and Eve were supposed to alternate, that they would take turns somehow to say, now we're going to glorify God for a little while, and now we're going to enjoy God for a little while with our bodies. Those two things went together. Now, we recognize that in a fallen world, there's a lot of tension between those two things, perhaps, sometimes, at least there is. But as originally designed, those two things go together. I want to give you evidence that God has created these bodies of ours for enjoyment. Here's the scriptural evidence. Much of it comes from Genesis itself. Scriptural evidence, point number one. God put them in a garden that he had prepared for them. 
God didn't put them on Mars. God didn't put them on the moon. God put them in the garden that he had prepared. There was gold in some parts of that. There were precious stones in parts of that. There were rivers and trees that were all part of this garden that God had placed them into. Second evidence, God made trees. God made trees that were good for food and pleasing to the eye, pleasant to the eye. Now, I've preached on this before, and so I'm not going to belabor this point right now. But the fact that at that time, God doesn't only make something that is useful to us, but in, includes in that something that is beautiful to our sight, there's no need for that. There's no necessity for it, except to enjoy him forever. Third thing, God fashioned the woman from the man and brought them together. And when he did, Adam wrote the first song. He wrote the first love song. He wrote the first bit of poetry reflecting on this creation. And we don't need to turn to it, but the Song of Solomon and the Proverbs themselves would say that what the man and what the woman are supposed to do with their bodies is to delight in one another, to delight in one another in these bodies that God has made. Here's my fourth evidence from Genesis. The man and the woman were in a place named Eden. Now, every pastor has things that they love, and one of the things that I love is the meaning of Eden. I've said it a number of times. Do you remember it? This is, this is a quiz, but you will not be judged uh, too harshly. Do you remember what Eden means? What, is the, what, it, what does it mean? It's almost unspeakable to us, but Eden means pleasure, delight. God, and it's almost odd for us in our fallen selves to conceive of this, to even say it out loud, God put the man and the woman in the garden of pleasure. He put them in the garden of delights. That's what he named it. That's how he created it. That's the purpose behind it, to glorify and to enjoy him forever. Just two other passages that I have to read for us in connection uh, with this, and these are familiar to you. Psalm 104, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. That's creational language, right? And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. A face shining, a gladdened heart are superfluous if the only goal is to say, listen, you just need to, you need to have sustenance to do the work that I've given you to do, period. It, and that sustenance could come in a little K-ration or a little thing that would go up to the astronauts, you can suck it out of the bag and everything would be fine. No, no, no. Wine to gladden the heart. Oil to make the face shine. Bread to strengthen the heart. And then one other psalm for us. Psalm 36, 7 through 8. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Delights. 
God allows us to drink from his delights. All right, so the first category then is, what do you do with that body? Glorify and enjoy God. Here's a second category. A second way to describe what a body is to do is to ask, what does God do? Since we are imitators, what does God himself do? As the sovereign king over all things, what does he do? Now, this is the reason why I had us look at those, or confess, those catechism questions today. The questions went like this. What, are, what is God's eternal decree? And the answer is, God's eternal decree? Yeah, I knew this was going to happen. Hang on. <laughs> All right. I said the question wrong. The decrees of God. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, whereby for his own glory, according to his own counsel, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So the decrees of God are the purposes that God has that God wants to accomplish. Then we ask the question, how does God execute his decrees? And the answer is, God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Creation and providing for the earth. Creation and taking care of the creation that he has made. Under God, if you are an imitator of God, I would suggest that if someone was imitating somebody else, that they would watch what that other person does and go, okay, got it, that's what I'm supposed to do. Under God, we are to be creators and providentially caring for the world that God has made. Now, please understand what I am saying here. Obviously, we do not do this in an uh, absolute or ultimate or independent sense. Those belong to God and to God alone. He takes counsel with his own will to determine his decree, whereas we take counsel with his decree to do what God has commanded us to do. But in a very real sense, in giving us dominion over the earth, the stewardship of that dominion categorically includes creation and providence that belong not only to God, but to we who imitate God as well. This is called a variety of things theologically. It's called the dominion mandate. It's sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate or the creational ordinances. But I just want to use these two categories, create in the first place. We are to create. Now, most obviously, most wonderfully, and most directly, this refers to procreation at its core. Right? The, the, the commands, the commissioning that God gives to us are be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And all of them require and assume this God-given ability to create. And as Adam thus to Eve via Milton would say, listen, Eve, there's a lot to do here. There's a lot of branches to trim. There's a lot of pricker balls to pick up. We need more hands than ours to do this work. More hands than ours to do the work to fill this earth. And we looked at this one, I think, I think it was last week that we looked at this one, but Genesis 5.3 says this, it says, and then Adam fathered Seth, so Adam and Eve father Seth, but Adam fathered Seth after his own image, after his own likeness. And so here you have the one who is the image bearer himself, immediately created by God, 
who now is fathering is, if you will, procreating another image bearer, someone after his image, after his likeness as well. And so here you go. What's a body to do? With your body, you are to make more bodies. With your body, you are to make more bodies. Now, this doesn't in any way exhaust the idea of creation for us any more than it did for God. God didn't just make Adam and Eve, and that was it, nothing else made, but instead he made all sorts of things. We are to create. We are to create more gardens. We are to create more patterns, more varieties of plants. We are to create bread and wine. I read for Psalm 104 wherein God gives the bread and the wine, but here's the reality. God actually doesn't immediately give bread and wine, save for a couple of obvious examples in Scripture, manna from heaven, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, and the wedding at Cana of Galilee when the wine is created by our Lord. But instead, we make them. We make bread. Now, ultimately, you can say all things come from God. God makes all things. But we make bread, and we make wine. That's our charge, actually, to make those things under the mighty maker. The mighty maker has created all these things, and we are to then follow in his steps. We're to make bread and wine. We are to make, for example, homes. Now, this is, a, uh, this is a sermon of old favorite verses and old favorite uh, quotes. And I can't resist here uh, a quote from Proverbs 3 and Proverbs 24. In Proverbs 3, I'm going to read you a quote about how God has created this world. Here's the quote. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down with the dew. By wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Now, you turn over to Proverbs chapter 24. That's a big creation. That's the creation of all that there is. And God is overseeing it. Proverbs 24 puts that on a micro level. It puts it to the level of an image bearer where it says this. By wisdom, a house is built. And by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. The macro level is what God has done. The micro level, God's made all the universe and all the earth and all the seas and everything that in them is. You make a home by wisdom, by knowledge, by understanding. You fill it according to those things with your body. With your body, you create music, you create art, you create tools, you create chairs, you create tables, you create books, you create poems. We are to create things that are pleasing to the eye or to the ear or to the taste or to the smell or to the touch. We are to create things that are useful. We are to create things that are helpful and things that are good in this world. You are to be a creator. And in providence, we are to care for the things that God has made. We are to care for the things that he has made and the things that we have made. We are to exercise a godly dominion in this world and we are to do so wisely. When, when we hear that word dominion, whether it's from Psalm 8 that we hear it or in the catechism that we hear it or in Genesis that we hear it, for us a modern connotation of the idea of dominion sounds kind of oppressive. It could sound kind of abusive because it kind of drifts into the word domination and dominate and you go, wait, this isn't good. 
And yet, biblically speaking, wisely, we do as God does. We are to guard and to protect, to take care of. We're to clean things, to pick up things off the ground, to trim the plants. We are to parent the children. We are to provide for the household. Those are things that God does for the world. They are the things that we are to do as well as we're given the opportunity to do those things. You don't have children and say, well, I'm glad I created these little image bearers. Now I don't really want anything to do with them. I'm going to practice free-range parenting. They can go off and do whatever they want to do. No, you have to care for the ones that you created. Sometimes you'll hear people, if you're into gardening, you'll hear people who say, listen, could you design something for me that doesn't take any maintenance at all? <laughs> the answer is, well, yes, artificial things are great like that. You just stick them in the ground and they're artificial and they stay right there. Everything else takes maintenance. Everything else takes works because that's the way God designed things to work out in this world. As an image bearer of God, your Christian life, and I've got to say this and I want to say it carefully, so please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say here. Your Christian life is not constrained or confined to prayer, to reading the Word of God, to coming to small group Bible studies, to coming to worship. Those are good, core, essential things in the life of the Christian, delightful things in the life of the Christian, but your life is a calling, your life is a vocation in its totality before God. And your body and its doings are that work that God has called you to do. And please note the use of the word work. We are speaking of the works of creation, God's works of creation and providence. The creation and the care thereof are the work of God's hands, and so we are to work with our hands. Right? That's the Proverbs 31 image. A woman who works with her hands. And on the front of your bulletin, I put another favorite from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. But we urge you, brothers, to do this, that is brotherly love that was mentioned above, more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Why? Why? Because that's how God executes his decrees. God works. You're an image bearer. You're an imitator. You work in works of creation and works of providence. And our work is to be done in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So here you go. What are you creating and what are you taking care of? Embodied image bearer. What are you doing with your body? What are you creating and what are you taking care of? All right, so we've got two categories. Glorify and enjoy creation and providence. And the last one is short, brief, to the point, but it is a supra category. As an embodied image bearer, what are you to do with your body, with your body, with every part of your being? You are to love. You are to love. You are to love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are to be a lover. And without being a lover, in your doing of all of these things, you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, and whenever I hear noisy gong or clanging cymbal, I think of an old Star Trek episode that describes, an alien race, of course, describes man as uh, ugly bags of mostly water. 
Without love, we are ugly bags of mostly water. Creation and its care is the overflow of the love of God. Image bearers should do what God does. He loves. He loves. He loves his creation in all of it. We've several times in sermons past reflected on John 13.1, and you'll recall as John writes there in John 13.1, looking at Jesus, remembering Jesus, John writes, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And then John gives us a story. What did that look like? Well, it looked like the Son of God taking off his clothes, wrapping a towel around his waist, and taking his body and the hands in which, with which he was incarnate, and taking the body of his disciples and the lowest part of their body, literally the lowest part, the feet, into his hands and putting his body on their body to wash their body. And then he said to them, after that, a new commandment I give to you. The commandment that I give to you is that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he did something else. He went out and he gave up his body for them. He gave up his body for them, for their bodies, for their lives. Brothers and sisters, be imitators of God. That is what you are. That is the mission that you have, to be an imitator of God. If you have to have a rumba, okay. Some of my very best friends have rumbas. One of my children, one of my own flesh and blood and bones has at least an imitation rumba. Not this one. <laughs> not, not this one out here. But be an imitator of God as embodied image bearers lay hold of the mission to bear the image, to glorify and enjoy, to create and to provide care and to love, because that is what a body is to do. Lord, we pray that you would help us. We know the weakness of the flesh. We know how oftentimes we misuse this gift in this way that you have created us. By the power of your indwelling spirit, after the pattern of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, unto the command that you, Father, have given, we pray that we would be conformed more and more into the image of the Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, our hymn of response is, is just bingo on the money. So we're going to stand together and we're going to sing 122, God all nature sings thy glory. It's Beethoven's ninth.